Mark chapter 5 once again. Continuing in the Missio Christi series, we'll be finishing the, the series next week. The title of this sermon is Death. Isn't that exciting sounding? Mark chapter 5, we've been in this passage for four weeks now. We're just going to look at just a little nuance here, just a quick little thing. We're going to start reading verse 18. We're going to start at the, we're going to end our reading right in the beginning of verse 19. It says in Mark 5, 18, and as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him, but Jesus did not let him. Let's pray. Christ, we say together that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, and you are the Lord of our lives. We say together as best as we know how by grace that our lives belong to you. We believe because your word says it that we've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. And we ask that Jesus, you would be glorified in our lives. To a greater degree, more than ever before now, as a church and as individuals, you would be exalted in the way that we live and in the things that we say. We ask that you would give us the grace to decrease that you might increase. We ask that we would become increasingly less egocentric and more Christocentric, less concerned about ourselves and more concerned about Christ and his glory and his purposes in our lives, in our community, for the nations. I ask the Holy Spirit, you would give us a greater revelation of the beauty of the cross, that from which we've been saved. You give us a greater revelation of the wonder of Christ to whom we've been saved and by whom we've been saved, that we would be captivated, charmed, and entranced with Jesus. This world would have less of a pull on us. We'd be fully committed to your plan and purposes in the world. So give us grace today, Lord. Accomplish these things in us. We look not for a religious response. We look for an authentic transformation by the power of your Holy Spirit partnered with your Holy Word. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me start by asking you guys a question. Has God ever said no to you? Anybody ever feel like God has said no to you? The vast majority of you are saying yes, yes, yes. I've had God say no. Most of us have had one of those times where there was something that we really wanted. We really wanted to go after, whether it was a job or a relationship or an opportunity or a thing. But we've experienced God say no. Something we really wanted, but it wasn't what God wanted for us. And that can be hard. Let's be honest. That can be hard when God says no. Sometimes he does. Sometimes God says no. Let me ask you a different question. Have you ever said no to God? Well, a less enthusiastic response from all of you. <laughs> Have you ever sensed that there was something God really wanted you to do? You really felt that he was calling you to something, whether it was a person, a relationship, a job, an opportunity, a situation, something he was leading you into, or even something he wanted you to surrender, to give up, to put down, and you just said no. I mean, sometimes we say no to God, and that can be messy. After this man 
had been set free and renewed by the power of Jesus Christ, he had a certain response. It was a good response. It wasn't the best response. It made sense. It wasn't what Christ had. He simply wanted to go with Jesus. Who could blame him? Jesus just set him free from a legion of demons. He wanted to go be with Jesus. And Jesus said no. What he wanted to do wasn't a bad thing. It just wasn't the best thing. Part of the secret of the Christian life is so pursuing after Christ and his purposes that we're discovering the best thing that he has for us all the time. We settle for lesser things too often. We settle for things that are just good instead of what God actually has for us. But here we see, as we often see in our own lives, what this man wanted to do and what Christ wanted him to do were in conflict. And somebody has once said, when the will of God crosses the will of man, somebody has to die. Guess who that should be? When the will of God crosses the will of man, somebody has to die. He obeyed Jesus, and as we spoke of last week, there was great fruit because of his obedience. It wasn't what he wanted to do necessarily. It was what Christ wanted him to do immediately. But let's just entertain the thought for a minute. What if he had said no? I mean, we do that all the time. What if he had said no? We think, being outside the situation, that that Christ just would have made him. You know what I mean? That Jesus would have said, dude, whatever, who do you think you are? Get over there and tell your people the great things I've done for you and how I have mercy on you before I don't. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like outlandish to think that he might say no to Jesus. We do that all the time. And how does Jesus deal with you? Does he force you? Not that often, huh? I mean, we're just speculating now. We don't want to go too far with speculation, but the way that God deals with us and our rebellion is any indication. Jesus might have urged him a little more, but he might just let him get in the boat and go back with him. What would the implications of that have been? Have been? What would the implications have been if he had said no? Because we know that he went and he told his people there was nobody else on that side of the Galilee to tell those people about Jesus. We know that it bared fruit. The next time they sh- that Jesus showed up on that side of the Galilee, everyone knew who he was and they wanted him to heal people. There's tremendous fruit. What if he had said no? What happens when we say no? More than we dare to think. It's ridiculous to think, but by way of illustration, what if Jesus had said no in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he wrestled with the reality of the cross. Prayed three times, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He surrendered. He died to self that he might die for us. What if he had said no? We can't speculate on that. It doesn't even make theological sense. He won it. But the horror of saying no, the possible implications of that for our lives. We need to realize that if we're going to live life on mission, there's going to be certain times where God tells us no. There just is. 
Why is that? Why are we going to hear no? Well, because we're not always tracking perfectly with the plan and purposes of God. We want to be, we wish we were, we're trying to be, but we're not always in the perfect flow of the Spirit. Only Jesus is batting a thousand, whatever that means. But, but we're not perfect, so we get off track from time to time. So we're, we're going to hear Jesus say no to certain things and, and redirect us in certain ways. Think of Paul in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, he wanted to go to Asia and Bithynia to preach the gospel, Bithynia being um, northern, central, modern Turkey. He wanted to go to that region and preach the gospel. That wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing. There was nothing inherently wrong with that. It wasn't the best thing. It wasn't the God thing. The Spirit said to him, no. Forbid him to go there. And then there was a redirecting. A redirecting of Paul's life. He had a vision and a call to Macedonia. He went there and it it bare much fruit. But there was a clear no and then a redirecting, even in the apostle Paul's life for missional purposes, that he could accomplish the best purpose of God at that moment in history, just like this demoniac. Sometimes there's going to be a no and a redirecting. In my own life, I wanted to take over the family surfboard business. I grew up, my family had a successful surfboard business. I was making surfboards with my dad, helping them run the business. It was the family dream the family dream and plan for decades that I would take over that business. And I was totally stoked about that. There was nothing else I wanted to do. That was the perfect plan. That was my dream. And it appeared as though my dream would come true. There came a time when I heard God say, no, that's not my best plan for you. That was radical. I mean, God was saying no to my dreams. Not just mine, but that of my family. Our whole family heard God say no to our dreams. And then there was a redirecting toward ministry. What if I had said no to God? What happens when we say no to God? The testimony the Bible gives and that I would like to give is that God's way is always a better way. God's way is always the better way. There's not necessarily more money in it. There hasn't been. (laughs) But the kingdom of God is not about those things. It's not necessarily more fame. The kingdom of God is not about those things. There's a surrendering, a death, a dying to dreams to fulfill the purposes of God. And it is always better. It is never easier. But it is always better. We've been looking at Jesus as the example for living life on mission. The example for living life on mission. But we have to balance that study of Christ as example 
with the realization that God did not love the world so much that he gave his only begotten son as merely an example for us. Okay, Christ is more than an example. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. It's not merely an example for us. Christ died for us. And only through that do we have forgiveness, life, renewal, and transformation. It all flows from the death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything then in the Christian life is to flow forth from that death of Jesus Christ. Everything is connected to the dying of Christ. We must realize as we're studying Jesus and as an example of mission and we want to live on mission that his mission took him to death. His mission took him to the cross. And the Christian life somewhat mysteriously is patterned after this. In every way, in a broad stroke and in the minutia of it, the Christian life is patterned after this dying that Christ did in our stead. The difference, though, is that we don't die in the place of others necessarily. We die to ourselves in allegiance to another, Christ. We don't die in the place of others necessarily. We die to ourselves in allegiance to Christ. Additionally, we die to ourselves for the sake of others. We die to ourselves in allegiance to another, and we die to ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus spoke of the first one in Luke 9, where he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And when Jesus spoke of picking up the cross, his original audience knew exactly what that meant. There wasn't any misunderstandings. The cross wasn't a symbol of something good at that time. The cross wasn't a necklace or a bumper sticker or something screened on a t-shirt. There, there was no question what he was talking about. His audience knew that he was speaking about death, the end of a person. If anyone wants to come after me, there has to come the end of that person. It's the only thing that the cross could have meant in that context. We water it down all sorts of ways. You know, we talk about our cross to bear. And it's like, oh, I have a, a skin condition. It's my cross to bear or my in-laws, they're my cross to bear or whatever it is. That's, that's not what he's talking about. If anyone wants to come after me, they've got to deny themselves. In fact, there has to be an end to self daily. Pick up their cross daily. A prerequisite for following him. Everything in the Christian life comes from this death of Christ who died in our place and of us in allegiance to him and of us for the sake of others. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Christ is the exemplar of that, the model of that. He did that. And we are called to die to ourselves for the sake of others in selfless giving, selfless serving. So we die to ourselves in allegiance to Christ. We die to ourselves for the sake of others. There's a man named C.T. Studd, died in 1931 from England. 
He was known as one of the Cambridge Seven. Cambridge Seven were seven students from Cambridge who um, were, came from wealthy families, lives of privilege, and they left all of that behind in order to serve where the gospel had not gone, out on the mission field in the far reaches. And through that sacrifice and through their example, thousands have been impacted to give up everything and follow Christ to the ends of the earth. One of those men was C.T. Studd. Grew up in a wealthy and luxurious home. Spent his childhood doing things like hunting and playing cricket and racing horses. Fine English rich person stuff. His dad got saved when he was a teenager and then he subsequently got saved in his teens. After that, he was attending Cambridge and he was a cricket player and he became one of the best cricket players Cambridge had ever had. By 1883, he was a household name in England, nationally known, famous for playing cricket. But there was a disconnect. Although C.T. Studd was wealthy, famous, good-looking, talented, kind-hearted, there was some disconnect. He was missing a sense of Christian mission in his life. He was a Christian, but there was no mission. From the exterior, he had it all. C.T. Studd. I mean, just listen to the name. (laughs) He had it all. But there was a disconnect. Something was missing, a sense of Christian mission. And speaking about this, he said, instead of going and telling others, remember Christianity is a go and tell thing, instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept the knowledge all to myself. The result was that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world came in. Instead of telling others about the love of Christ, he says he was selfish. He he couches it in the right phraseology there. He calls it what it is. We call it other things. We say, it's not my gifting or I'm too timid or you're not allowed to do that at work. He nails it. It is always selfishness to withhold the revelation of the love of Jesus from other people. I know we all, we all do it. We all fail in that. I don't want to put any heavier of a trip on you than I'll put on myself. I'm just saying this man called it what it was. He said, I was selfish. I didn't go and I didn't tell. And I want you to see the result of that. His own testimony that was that when he kept the love to himself, the love grew cold. That love affair, that fiery thing that it's meant to be between Jesus and a person, it doesn't blossom and bloom and, and, and blow a flame when it's kept to self. But when it's pushed outward, when it's expressed and when it's exposed to others, It grows, it's cultivated, the fire is stoked. He said, when I was selfish, his love for Christ began to grow cold. And then the love of the world came in. Anytime the love for Christ is waning, the love for the world is increasing. Weigh yourself today. The love of the world and its thing is increasing in you. The draw and the pull and the attraction of worldly things are increasing in your life, then there is some waning thing going on with your love affair with Jesus. 
Not that his love for you has changed. It can never change. He loves you perfectly. But that the reality of your love expressed toward him, the first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Something is missing. And the testimony of his selfishness was that there is a greater attraction to the world and less of a worshipful expression to God. And so that refusal to die to self and selfishness brought another sort of death, the death of vibrant relationship. We think of what Christ said in Matthew 16, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? C.T. Studd was gaining the whole world, but it seemed as though he was forfeiting his soul. Then there came a change as there is coming a change with you. Then there came a change where he was just determined to express and expose the love of Christ to other people. And he started as the demoniac was instructed to start by Jesus with his own people. The first one to come to the Lord from his witness was one of his very best friends. Started with his own people. And then he testifies. He said, I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted most of the pleasures that the world can give. I do not suppose there was one that I had not experienced, but I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of that one soul gave me. Having tasted now the difference between the self-centered life and the Christ-centered life, he's rejoicing in his own death. In some way, self died there in order to be on mission. And now he's rejoicing in that death. He said, when I was pursuing self and the things of self, it paled in comparison to pursuing God and the things of God. He's rejoicing in the death of self. What about us? What about us? Maybe yours is not to lead someone to Christ, but it is that your life counts for Christ. It is. Some plant, some water, some reap, but your life is meant to count for Christ. Maybe your mission is your marriage right now. Maybe that's mission field number one for you, the place where you need to die to self and decreases in your marriage that it might blossom and bloom to the glory of God. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe in some way you need to die to self and your pursuits and your things and your fatigue and your attitude to be more careful with the stewardship God has given you of your children. Maybe it's among your friends. Maybe your reputation has to die in a certain way, as it would for C.T. Stott. Maybe you're a business person. And the will of God and the will of you and business is colliding and someone's got to die. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in the community. But for most of us, there is some way that is becoming clear to us today in which we know we need to die to self and to something in order that the purposes of Christ might be most effective in us and through us for his glory. It doesn't take a whole lot of soul searching to find out what that is, but it takes a little bit. Are you willing to die to your own wants, 
needs, desires, reputation as needed so that the mission of Christ can go forward through you? Or do you find yourself falling more in love with the world, more concerned with the things of the world, and hot pursuit of those things, too easily satisfied with its pleasures, too easily satisfied. You see, C.T. Studd had for a time been satisfied with the wealth and the luxury and the reputation and the sports and the fame and all of that. There came a time where he realized that that, those things paled in comparison. We are too easily satisfied. We were made for more. We were made for more to experience the person and the purposes of Christ. We're too easily satisfied with lesser things, cheap imitations that the world holds out to us. There comes a time of surrender and C.T. Studd surrendered and laid that stuff aside and he went off to be a missionary on the frontiers where the gospel needed to go in China, in India, and in Africa. Put all the wealth and the fame and everything aside. His motto was, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He gave up everything. Not everybody is called to give up everything, but certainly more of us are. To go where the gospel needs to go. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. We need to remember what 1 Corinthians 6 says that we've been bought with a price and we're not our own. See, there's a conflict. There's a battle. We want to be our own. We want our own hopes, our own dreams, our own plans. Comes in conflict with the will of God and somebody's got to die. The Bible tells us who? We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are not our own. It's not that we owe God something. That wouldn't be the gospel, right? It's not that Jesus died for us and now he's standing there with an open hand saying, come on, ante up. That's not it at all. It's a free gift. It's not that we owe him something, nor could we ever pay him back if it were that way. The gospels that we freely received, grace and mercy and life in Christ, but rather it is a right response to that gift, which comes from gratitude and a heart of worship. Romans 12, 11, therefore, 12, 1, excuse me. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is the only thing that it makes sense to do in light of how much mercy God has had on us. That we would live a life of surrender. Be daily willing to die to self. We understand that Christ died for us, but do we understand that in his dying for us, we no longer belong to us? We now belong to him. I love what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, New Living Translation. He says, my life is worth nothing to me 
unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What has God assigned you to? He's assigned you to be faithful with something or someone where you are right now. And can we say, as Paul said, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it to accomplish the purpose of Christ for me and for his glory. I'm rattled by those words. I'm rattled by those words because I find worth in other things. Identity in other things. Satisfaction in other things. We're too easily satisfied. My life is worth nothing to me unless I finish my assignment. You see, the problem with the church is we seldom believe that. We hear that. We intellectually assent to the idea, but we seldom truly believe that Christ's purposes are better than our own. C.T. Studd discovered that. Paul discovered that. The demoniac here would have discovered that. Some of you have discovered that, but so many of us, we don't actually believe that. And so when we do say no to God, what it is is a trust issue. It's a trust issue. We're saying we don't trust you, God. Because if we really trusted him, in the moment where he's saying no, we would believe that whatever he has for us is better. We don't truly believe it. We might sort of believe it and say, yeah, I'm sure it'd be better to do that, but, and we're too short-sighted. That's what was going on in the garden. It was a trust issue. When Eve disobeyed, that was a trust issue. She didn't trust God and what he had said. She was far too short-sighted, and so we are suffering the effects of their short-sightedness. What are the implications of saying no to God in this lifetime? A.W. Tozer says something profound. He said, the degree of blessing we enjoy will correspond directly with the completeness of God's victory over us. The degree of blessing we enjoy will correspond directly to the degree of God's victory over us. Again, it's not a performance thing. It's a gospel thing. It's that God wants to radically bless us and he does so in spite of us. But the more he conquers us, the more that we die and surrender, the more he can bless us. The more we put ourselves in the place of blessing. Matthew 10, 39 comes to mind. Jesus said, if you cling to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, you'll find it. The Salvation Army. Anybody ever heard of Salvation Army? Everybody has. Started on the east end of London by a guy named William Booth. And it was incredibly successful. And someone once asked him, the secret to his success. And William Booth responded by saying, God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains, greater opportunities than I. But from the day I had a vision of what God could do with the poor in old London, I made up my mind that God would have all there was of William Booth. And life surrendered to God. 
He gave his life in the serving of the poor. There came a death to whatever he had dreamt of before, hoped for previously. There came a death to those things. And he made a decision. There was a moment, a crux, a crisis where he said, this is it. God will have all of me. It's too easy to say, does God have all of you? No. Maybe it's a more helpful question to say, what does he not have of you? What are we withholding from him? I can identify things in my life. Can you identify things in your life? We're called to surrender those things, to die to those things, to allow those things to die. One author says along these lines, to embrace incarnational ministry. So we've been talking about all these weeks. To embrace incarnational ministry then involves a willingness to relinquish our own desires and interests in the service of others. Remember, in this world, we serve Christ by serving others. That's always going to require a death. It comes from the death of Christ. It's to be manifest in our lives. In his classic book, Christ Indwelling and Enthroned, J. Oswald Sanders challenges us with this. He says, each of us has sooner or later to decide what kind of Christian life we shall live. We're faced with two alternatives. On the one hand, a life of self-pleasing, self-choosing, self-indulgence, a life in which Christ has place, even prominence, but not preeminence. On the other hand, a life absolutely yielded to Christ, where his will alone is sought and obeyed, where self-will is crucified and self-pleasing is renounced, a life of self-sacrifice. We have to make that decision. We should identify right now in our lives as Christians, does Christ have a place, prominence, or preeminence? Place and prominence will never do. He is the Lord of the universe. And he has purchased us. He made us and then he purchased us. And he has to have preeminence. There needs to be a broad stroke in which we do this in our lives. That we paint our lives with a broad stroke of surrender. That we say, generally, my life is one that is surrendered to Christ, but the broad stroke is meaningless unless the details are painted out. And the details then of daily life and relationships, this surrender, this death needs to be explained and exposed. This was true in the life of Jim Elliott, who we have all heard of who died in the jungles of Ecuador in an attempt to take the gospel where it had never been. And six years before he was killed by the natives in the jungles of Ecuador, he wrote this in his journal on July 7th, 1948, reflecting on Psalm 104, verse 4, which says, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. He said, am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread abestus of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, a short life? Six years later, he was killed, but he had already died. 
He had already painted the broad stroke in his life of dying to self for the purposes of Christ. When he was killed, he was already dead. And Colossians 3.3 says, you have died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the journey of the Christian life is to bring the practical in line with the theological. Theologically, that is true. We have died and nailed to the cross with Christ. Practically now, that needs to be fleshed out. Our life is hidden in Christ. Alan Redpath in his book, Making of the Man of God, Making of a Man of God says, to educate and refine the flesh so that it may become profitable in his service is never God's plan. He insists on the sentence of death upon everything that you and I are in ourselves. All that we are apart from what we are given by his grace at the moment of regeneration is sentenced to God's judgment no matter how intellectual or proud or clever or good we may be. There's only one place for that which is self on Calvary. The life of surrender is always better. And we need to remember in the final analysis that God is a giver, he's not a taker. You don't have anything that he needs. God in and of himself is selfless, giver. And if you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. You surrender it for his sake. You find it. We are not called to be good people or better people. We have been made new people. We have been remade in the image of God who is selfless giver. And now our lives are to be an expression of who God is and it is best expressed in death to things that are contrary to his purposes for our life. May God give us grace to die today. Lord, we thank you for the challenge. And I must confess, Lord, I'm rattled. I want to surrender more of my life to you. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would so expose grace in the cross to us that our worlds would just be aligned with your will. We just would have such a fresh revelation of the cross and what Christ has done for us that we would just be willing to be there with him, nailed to it, crucified, the old man dead. That we'd be radical in our efforts to decrease that Christ might increase in his life through us. Thank you for the mystery of Christ in us, that Jesus, you want to express your life through us. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you would also give us a greater revelation of the beauty of Jesus that the things of the world would pale in comparison. Lord, we're sorry for our fascination with other things. We want to be captivated, charmed, and entranced only with you. Forgive our wanderings.
today we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, as James 5.16 says, that we might be healed. You can do that where you're at with who you're with. You can do that with a prayer team. They're on your right and on your left. Today we ought to have authentic displays of worship, of surrender before him on our faces, surrendered on our knees. We ought to do everything that we can to see Christ glorified in us and through us. Let's do that.